0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like more? Hey. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 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 Well, good morning, everyone. It's brilliant to be here today. <laughs> And as many of you know, my family's from Wales, we are. My nan's in Neath. she's just a little bit along from Cardiff, just, just south of the valleys. And, um, and whilst I may have somewhat mastered the Welsh accent, I've not mastered the Welsh language at all. The only Welsh I know, in fact, is from road signs, so I might need a little bit of help from these, but some of you might know Cymru, is that right, Stace? Wales. Araf. Slow down, yeah. But my, my favourite sign in Wales. In fact, maybe my favorite road sign in all of the world is this one. It says, no entry for heavy goods vehicles, residential site only. And as with all signs in, in Wales, there is both an English translation and a Welsh translation, but because not everyone in Wales speaks Welsh, in order to get these signs translated, they send the council send them to an in-house translation service in order to, to work out what the Welsh is. And so Swansea Council did this a number of years ago. They got the email back with the Welsh response. They put it on the sign, and this sign was erected in the middle of Swansea. And it was only a little while later, after several phone calls, that someone realized that the Welsh actually reads I'm sorry, I'm out of the office at the moment. Please send any work to be translated. (laughs) Signs are really important. Understanding them is really important. Um, But it's not just road signs. Many of you will have seen this week the start of the Conservative leadership contest. And we have various candidates, don't we, who are trying to, to sign, give a sign of what kind of leader they're going to be. They're trying to make a signal via a policy or, or a position of what kind of prime minister they will be. And over the summer series, as Matt has said, we're going to be looking at the seven signs of Jesus that are recorded about him in a biography of his life, written by one of his closest followers, a man named John. So these are seven signs, they're seven signals, seven statements about what kind of leader Jesus was going to be, why he came, what is it about him that we need to know. John finishes his biography by saying these words, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Something about these stories, these signs have been chosen so that we who read this letter, this biography, may, may believe in Jesus, that we may trust him, that we may follow him. And in doing so, we might have the life that Jesus has made us to live. Now, our mission statement as a church is to help people know God to believe in his name, to follow him, and then to find freedom, to discover purpose, to make a difference. And that's why we are looking at these signs. It's my prayer for all of us as we go through it. And I want to invite you to come and see what Jesus is about. Invite your friends, invite your neighbors, anyone, Farnborough, Cambly, surrounding areas. Let's gather together and come and see what Jesus is all about. Just like those in the Tory party candidates, uh, contest, um, the first sign matters a huge amount. We know Very early on, what these candidates are all about because of the first thing they say or the first thing they did. So, what is Jesus's first sign? Where are we going to start today? Is it in the temple? Is it a great feat of nature? Is it a prolific act of power? Actually, Jesus's first sign is at the wedding of Cana. So, we're going to read this story together and then we're going to go through it and see what we think John is telling us about Jesus. If you've got your Bibles, please feel free to turn to John chapter 2. Um, But I'm going to read the words as they appear on the screen. So on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This story starts with the crisis, and I'm sure that many of you have experienced moments of crisis in your life when. That, that heart-sinking feeling when you're, when you're given some news or, or something happens and you think, gosh, that, that's not the way I expected it to be. I remember one moment in my life. Twickenham Stadium, Rugby World Cup 2015. It was England versus Australia for a place in the quarterfinals. This was England's home World Cup. It was the first time I'd been back at Twickenham since I was a young boy, and I remember the excitement. England were going to win the tournament. It was, it was on our home turf, but slowly Australia dominated this match, and England had people sent off, and we missed scoring opportunities. And I remember 20 meters in front of me as I was in the corner, Australia crossing with a few minutes to go, and my heart sank. I knew that it was over, the infamy of being knocked out of your home World Cup when you were expected to win. Many crises, of course, go more and more significant. This is Rachel and I at our wedding. Yeah, I know. Can you believe 15 years ago we looked so the same, right? (laughs) Well, one of us does, yeah. Um, But but this was our wedding cake. Um, I'm not a huge fan of wedding cakes, so we had a tiered strawberry pavlova. And and we ran out on our wedding day, which was a bit of a disappointment for us because we didn't get to taste any, but it wasn't the end of the world. Um, In this story, the crisis is much more significant. Um, The two two people getting married were likely likely teenagers, and this was their wedding day in the village of Cana. Cana today is a bustling town in the Middle East, but but in the first century, it was a tiny little village, so much so that you notice in the first verse that John actually has to tell people where it is. It's Cana in, in Galilee, by the way. And So this was a big event. This was the wedding that the whole of the village would have been invited. The wedding would have lasted about a week. And so when you get halfway through the wedding and wine is running out, that's, that's really significant. More than that, it's, it's probably also the case, historians think that this couple may well have been sued or, or charged a penalty for not completing their wedding. The fact that they run out of money was not just going to cause great embarrassment and shame to their families, but they were going to have to pay a financial penalty for it. And you can imagine this moment happening. They've been planning this wedding for ages, and they see the wine is running out, and they get that heart-sinking feeling, thinking, gosh, this, this isn't the way that I thought it was going to go. We could be in trouble here. There might be some folk in the room who feel the same way today. You might not be running out of wine, though you may be, but you've come in with a smile, you've, you've said hello, but... You know, thinking, think, gosh, I'm really running low. I'm running out of energy for, for my job or for the business I run. You're thinking, gosh, how am I going to get through the next few months? Maybe you're running out of motivation for a marriage. You had certain hopes and dreams about what a marriage would look like, and you're thinking, gosh, I, I just can't have that conversation any more times. Maybe you're running out of ideas, parenting children, I know that feeling. I've got four of them. I had all sorts of ideas about what kind of dad I would be and what kind of parenting strategies we would use. Running out of ideas, I feel like, some of the time. Maybe it's your faith. Maybe you once followed Jesus so passionately, but now you're feeling like you're running out of desire for him. Whatever it be, job, marriage, faith, our health, our parenting. You could be sitting here this morning thinking, gosh, I feel like I'm running low. I think I, think I could be in trouble. I think we could be in trouble let's have a look how jesus responds to this young couple when the wine was gone jesus's mother said to him they have no more wine woman why do you involve me jesus replied my hour has not yet come his mother said to the servants do whatever he tells you in my family, growing up, we called each other lots of different names, some of them that I probably shouldn't repeat on the stage. I called my mum, Mummy, Mum, Mama, now it's Julia or Jules occasionally. But the conversation that never, ever happened in our house was, morning, Tim, morning, woman. <laughs> I get home from school, woman, what's for dinner today? Woman, can you take me to the bus? It, like, it's, it's a strange phrase to use, isn't it? It kind of it jolts. Actually, Jesus uses it again in a couple of chapters' time when he's speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. He says the same, woman. Now, I don't want to overstate how unusual it is because when Jesus is on the cross, he sees his mother before him and he says the same, he says woman, and he explains how he'll provide for her with, with great tenderness. But, but Jesus' response, woman, along with an explanation that my hour has not yet come, I think does signify something to us. This is right at the start of Jesus' ministry. He spent 30 years in his, in his family home and now he's called his first disciples and he's beginning the long road to Jerusalem where one day he will die. D.A. Carson puts it like this. He says, we must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He has embarked on his ministry. The purpose of his coming his only lodestar his heavenly Father's will. And as I've been preparing this week, on the one hand, I've been really encouraged and excited about the miracle that we're about to see, but I've also been challenged by this too. Sometimes when I think about my faith, I think, oh, I've got a great job and family and these leisure activities, and isn't it good I've got faith too, and this all comes together, and I'm so glad that I invited Jesus into my life, that I invited Jesus into my heart. And actually... Sometimes I think Jesus never asked to be invited into my heart. The way that he called was said, follow me. Further up on this page, if you're following in your Bibles, in John chapter 1, he calls the disciples. He doesn't say, can I come and be a part of what you're doing? He says, put down your nets, follow me. And there have been moments in my life where I feel like I've really embraced that. When Jesus was, was in the driver's seat and it was sometimes scary and it was sometimes tiring and it sometimes felt like we were giving up a lot. But gosh, it felt so good to be doing the thing that Jesus made me to do. But then there were moments as well where I got distracted. I thought, oh Jesus, can I just take the map back for a little bit? Because I'd quite like to go and pursue this for a little while. And I'd quite like to do this and I'd quite like to do that. And there are, of course, different things that Jesus calls us to at different times, but I want to encourage you this morning. If if you're here and you think, I might have been following Jesus for a long time, but in all honesty, he is not in the driver's seat of my life right now. I want to encourage you, maybe this could be the morning when you let go of the wheel. Jesus loves you, he's got such a wonderful plan for you, he, he's got the best at mind for you, he wants you to live the life that he made you to live. He said that he came so that you could have life in all of its fullness, both here and in the age to come. Jesus says, Follow me. Maybe you could look back on this Sunday in a few years' time and think, Gosh, yeah, that was a morning when I said, Yeah, Jesus, take back the wheel. Jesus, I'm going to follow you. And look, gosh, what's happened since. I've been up and I've been down, but it's been so good to follow him. It's not always easy, not always obvious why Jesus asks us to do what he asks us to do. This is the next part. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he told you. What does Jesus say? Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. So there's no particular evidence at this point that Mary knew exactly who Jesus was, that she was expecting him to do a miracle. But Jesus had been with her for 30 years. She, she trusted him. She trusted him to resolve this situation. And so she says to the servants, do what he says. But what he says to the servants is very unusual. The situation is we've run out of wine. Jesus says, got it. Go and fill up those water jars. I think if you were a servant, you'd be like, right, Jesus, kind of hear what you're saying. Happy to give that a go. But it's the wine that's the problem, not the water. Yeah, go and fill up the water jars. You might feel that way sometimes in your life. Jesus, you're praying for something. You're looking in the Bible to try and get some guidance. You feel like God's saying something to you. You're like, well, God, that's not really the thing that I was praying about. It's not the kind of thing that I was expecting you to say. Why does Jesus do it in this particular case? Well, actually, if you look over the next few weeks, we'll see this. But in this early part of John, Jesus takes a number of these kind of Jewish customs or rituals, and he redefines them around himself. So later on in chapter 2, we see Jesus redefining the temple. The temple was the place in the first century where you went, if you wanted to know God, if you wanted to know peace with God, you would go to the temple, you would clean yourself, you would come before him. Jesus says, destroy this temple, referring to himself. He redefines the temple himself. He says, if you want to know God, if you want to know peace with God, that's no longer in a building, but you find it through a person, through me. Chapter 4, Jesus says the same to the Samaritan woman. She's asking about where we worship, and he'll say, you no longer worship on the temple, no longer in the mountaintop, but those who worship will worship in spirit and in truth. And I think the same thing is happening here. I think he's saying that this couple will become pure and clean, their shame, their embarrassment, this debt that they owe will be taken away, not because of anything that they can do, but because they will come to Jesus. Jesus is the one that will do it. The early Christian leader, Paul, says something similar to his apprentice, Timothy, says, When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior you looking back over the last few months, you think, gosh, I don't, I don't really know what I've been doing. I don't know if I've been following Jesus. I don't feel like I can come before him. I want to encourage you this morning as we respond, come back to Jesus. Not because of, you're going to be able to pull your bootstraps, not because you're going to be able to convince him that actually you were all right all along, not because of any promise that you can make about things going to change, but come back to Jesus who came to rescue us. Verse 8, then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best to last. So the wine is brought before the, the master of the banquet, the host, the one who's responsible for making sure that this party continues. And when he does, this young couple are saved, right? Their embarrassment, no shame. More than that, it's not just not just that they don't receive shame, but they receive a great honor. The master of the banquet calls the groom to him and says, Gosh, most people do it this way, but you have saved the best to last. What a guy you are! No financial penalty that they have to pay, possibly even a great financial gift because there would have been so much rich wine left over at the end. And what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. His disciples believed in him. And this, I think, is the key verse. This is key to unlocking the passage. This is the first of Jesus' signs, the first of signals, the statement of intent. And why did he choose this one? Why not something more public? Why not something more grand? As we just read, most of the people in the wedding didn't actually realize that Jesus did this. Those that did realize might well have forgotten by the morning. Think at the wedding of Cana in Galilee, we see that Jesus comes into our ordinary lives. He comes to a party, he comes to a wedding, and with compassion, he saves this young couple. Their shame and their embarrassment become honor. Their debt is covered. He changes their lives. He brings them great joy. And that is what Jesus came to do. When I think about joy, when I think about happiness, I think of um, food, I think of friends, think of family, think of music, dancing, not personally, but think of laughing, I think of love, I think of weddings, Christmases, summer barbecues. Those are the things that Jesus has come to bring us, to secure that kind of joy, that kind of joy in our lives, both in this age and in the age to come, festival food, festival fun, festival joy. How does Jesus do it? Let's have a look at two signs that we might have missed as we went through. In verse 4, Jesus says, My hour has not yet come. This is a really interesting phrase. Throughout John's Gospel, the phrase, my hour, refers not to the start of Jesus' ministry, but it refers to his death on a cross. His hour is the moment that he will go to Jerusalem and die. And so what's going on here? This couple are in trouble. Mary says, Jesus, can you help? And he says, oh, the time of my death has not yet come. Here's what I think is going on. I think we have a couple who are in trouble. As I've said, they need to be saved. They need to be spared from the penalty that they face. And Mary asks Jesus to do it. Jesus knows that that is the reason he has come. He has come to save us. He has come to spare us. He knows that none of us can live adequately or perfectly the life that he made us to live. He came to stand in our place, to turn our shame into honor, to pay any debt that we owe. But he knows in order to do that, he's one day going to have to go to the cross. One day his hour will come. Why does Jesus need to do it? Why can't God just forgive our sins? Why can't that penalty just be erased? Tim Keller explains it like this. He says, imagine you go into someone's house and you knock over an expensive ornament. There are, there are two things that can happen at that point. One, you can say, gosh, I am so sorry that I broke this. Would you like me to pay for it? And they might say, yep, yeah. yeah, actually, that would, be, that would be really good. Or you might knock over the ornament, offer to pay, and they say, no, it's fine. And your debt and the consequences you face taken away, but in doing so, the owner of that ornament is taking the debt upon themselves. They are facing the consequence, and in Jesus, that's what we see God doing. He takes upon himself all of the consequences for the things that you and I do, and right here at the start of this ministry, he is signaling towards the day when that will happen, when his hour comes. I think there's a second sign as well, not just speaking about his death. I think Jesus is pointing us forward to the day that his grave will be empty when he'll be found alive, when those who follow him will be transformed. Did you see it? The first four words on the third day. Because it's on the third day after Jesus takes upon our debt that he is raised again, that our shame is turned to honor, that our death becomes life, that this watery existence on our own becomes wine, becomes rich, full life, following our Savior. He is the one who secures it for us. He is the one who provides this wedding joy, this festival joy in this age and in the age to come. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah speaks of a great feast at the end of time. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken, and in that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Can I welcome the band back up? onto the stage. This is what Jesus came to do, the master of the banquet, the giver of joy. He came to secure a feast for all peoples in the age to come. Isaiah speaks about this gloomy sheet, almost like imagine a tarpaulin the size of the world that's covering us up right now. We have life underneath it, but it's life like life under a tarpaulin will be. It's not always that pleasant. But Jesus said, one day that tarpaulin, that great sheet that covers the earth will be lifted up and the light and the glory of the goodness of God will pour upon us as heaven and earth are joined together and death is swallowed up in victory. Many of you will know the Bible ends with a really similar picture, looking ahead to the great day that Jesus returns when heaven and earth are reunited it's another great wedding this time jesus is the groom his people are the bride behold john says jesus is making everything new what should we say to finish the old testament looks forward to this festival joy the new testament looks forward to this festival joy and jesus launches his ministry with festival joy in the wedding in cana in galilee where jesus performs his first sign he points us to this day when one day we will gather before him, when everything will be made new, when in the words of J. Tolkien, everything sad will come untrue. And friends, we experience some of that in this life. I do hope, I pray you experience some joy in this life. Weddings and births and well-cooked steak and well-aged wine, the Beatles and bark and books and the batman trilogy all sorts of things that give us life all sorts of things that give us joy but they are just a taste of what is to come a taste of that moment when we see Jesus face to face the true master of the banquet when heaven and earth are reunited when we come before him when we see him in all of his glory when we step into the life that he has planned for us that life that no eye has seen that life that no ear has heard the life that no mind can conceive He's preparing for those who love him. And we too, like the master of the banquet, will stand before him on that day and say, Jesus, you have saved the best until last. Let's stand together this morning and worship him. You're like a circle that floats around me, keeping me safe and sound. And when I fall, you've tied a rope to me. Blessing me every day.